World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Aura Okumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Actors were so worried about artificial intelligence coming for their jobs that they went on strike about it. But according to our media editor, the biggest celebrities actually stand to gain. Introducing the Omnistar. And it ain't easy being a bird migrating through New York. So many of them smash into the city's skyscrapers that there are patrols to aid the injured and count the dead. But new bird safety initiatives have been so successful that other cities are following suit. First up, though. For many Ukrainians, daily reminders of the war are rare. Bars and restaurants in the capital, Kiev, are packed, and evening traffic is as thick as it was before Russia's invasion. But in dozens of cities and towns along the length of the front line, the war is a constant. Kherson, a port city in southern Ukraine, is one such place. It was occupied by Russia for more than eight months before being freed following a drawn-out and bloody battle. On Saturday, its residents marked the first anniversary of their liberation. But while Russian forces are gone, life in Kherson is far from normal. The city doesn't feel entirely deserted. Some shops, some restaurants are open. And all of the shops, all of the supermarkets are very well stocked. And that's a a major contrast from the occupation. Our correspondent Piotr Zalewski has been reporting from Kherson. The billboards that once proclaimed the city's supposed future union with Russia have been taken down. Shops no longer accept Russian rubles, as they were forced to do during the occupation. But it's not so much what you see as what you hear that is so striking in Kherson. Every day, hundreds of shells are lobbed into Kherson and the surrounding areas from across the Dnieper River by the Russian forces who retreated from the city last November. Explosions shake the city and its outskirts every few minutes. And the sense that Kherson is still a war zone is inescapable. So Kherson is still under constant attack. Piotr, you've been speaking with people on the ground. What's the mood like amongst its residents? Well, there's a feeling of fear, of anxiety. To some extent, just as you know, people in Kiev and in the cities far away from the front lines have learned to live with the occasional air sirens, People in Kherson have become accustomed to the sound of relentless shelling. 
Obviously, many of them are still extremely anxious, frightened. But that kind of fear, as people there will tell you, still pales in comparison with the horrors of the occupation. And frankly, many folks that we spoke to in Kherson were on the verge of tears when they were asked to remember the occupation. One woman told me that she couldn't convey in words how horrible the occupation was. And then broke down when she mentioned that her brother was still in Russian captivity. The local governor, Alexander Prakudin, told me that people were quite worn down by the shelling, that they were tired, that there were constant explosions, people die, people are wounded. <laughs> and he summed up the mood, saying it's shitty. And that, frankly, is a rather euphemistic translation from the original Ukrainian. But there is also a sense of defiance across Ukraine as a whole. Over 90% of people still believe in victory. And I think Kherson, despite the constant shelling, is no exception. People do say that victory will come, but they are aware that it will not happen overnight and it might not even happen over the coming year. And is there any sense of why Russia is still firing on this city, considering that they were pushed out a year ago? One of the reasons they are firing on the city is because they were pushed out a year ago. And local authorities will tell you that the reason for the most recent barrage, uh, hundreds of shells fired into the city every day, is a response to recent Ukrainian gains. Now, these gains haven't been of a great magnitude, but it appears that the Ukrainians have managed to establish a small bridgehead on the left bank of the Dnieper, some kilometers northeast of Kherson. And the governor told me that he thinks, at least, that the shelling is symptomatic of frustration on the Russian side. But he did mention that things could get worse, and in that case, ordering the city's evacuation might be necessary. But given the constant attacks, how many people are there left in Kherson to still evacuate? Well, it's hard to say. There were probably about 150,000 people in Kherson when the city was liberated last November. And that's out of a pre-war population of about 300,000. Of those 150,000, the majority and possibly the vast majority seem to have left. And the current population is probably somewhere between 50,000 and 75,000. That's according to various estimates. Granted, many of the people who have left over the past year left because they could not leave when the city was under Russian occupation. But many are leaving, many have left because uh, the shelling has become unbearable. And I did meet a number of people at the train station who were packing up and readying to take the train to Mykolaiv and then to Kiev to escape there. 
Я не знаю, я вот всегда смотрю, что тут в Херсоне творится, всегда со слезами, и когда освобождали, тоже со слезами смотрела. One pensioner who I met readying to take the train to Kiev said that cried tears of joy when the city was liberated, but now she cries because of the shelling, and she too is leaving the city. And is there any end in sight to the shelling? Can Ukrainian forces do anything to stop it? The optimists will say that the bridgehead on the left bank of the Dnieper is a sign of things to come, and that Ukrainian troops can and will dislodge the Russians from the river's left bank. But uh, that seems unlikely. I mean, to place Kherson out of the range of Russian Grad rockets, the Ukrainians would have to push the Russians back some 40 kilometers. And given that the biggest advance that Ukraine has made on any section of the front over the course of the entire summer offensive is about 17 kilometers, that does seem unlikely. And what does this bleak outlook mean for the war effort more broadly? Well, the situation in Kherson also reflects some of the mounting frustration with the lack of substantial gains on the ground during the summer counteroffensive. So the atmosphere has also soured in Kiev and elsewhere in Ukraine. There is mounting speculation of a rift between President Zelensky and Valery Zaluzhny, the country's top military commander. And that is after General Zaluzhny told The Economist in a recent interview that the war had reached a stalemate. Those are words that President Zelensky has directly contradicted. Uh, and that is a rare sign of political infighting. But we've seen uh, more of that, at least over the past week or two. But obviously the anniversary is still a victory of sorts. Most people in Kherson will tell you that the shelling and the anxiety is nothing compared to the horrors of Russian occupation. One man I spoke to, a 75-year-old cardiologist, one of five doctors left at his local hospital in Kherson, said, look, we're not giving up and we're surviving and we're not leaving. And uh, one way or another, it will work out. Piotr, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. After more than six months, the Hollywood strike is over. A tentative agreement was reached last week between the film and television union, SAG Astra, and the big studios. Actors secured minimum pay increases, a streaming bonus, 
and consent and compensation for the use of their likeness by artificial intelligence. Those in the entertainment industry may be right to think that AI is coming for them. The music charts were recently topped by an AI-generated John Lennon. Scarlett Johansson and John Grisham are among those suing tech firms over the unauthorised use of their image and their words. But should they really be so worried? A lot of artists are worried about what AI will do for their careers. They think that it's going to erode their copyright, it's going to dilute their star power. Tom Wainwright is The Economist's media editor. But in fact, we think it's going to make the biggest celebrities bigger than ever. It's going to let them be in all markets, in all formats, at all times. And for this reason, we think it's going to give rise to what we're calling the Omnistar. So the big stars have nothing to worry about from AI? I'm not sure I'd go that far. I mean, they do have some legitimate concerns about things like copyright in the short term. But I think overall, in the long term, they're more likely to benefit. And history is quite a good guide to this. If you go back to the early 20th century, a lot of stars thought that film and radio were going to be terrible for them. They thought, who's going to come and see my live performances anymore now that they can just watch them for free at the cinema or listen to them on the radio? And in fact, as we know, those formats have turned out to be pretty big for the stars and made the bigger stars even bigger. And then something similar happened with TV. A lot of movie stars were worried that they were going to lose out if their performances could just be watched again for free on television. Again, TV has been a boon for the biggest stars. And so I think something similar could happen now with AI. Again, we're seeing the same worries that this technology could erode copyright and that it could lead to a dilution of star power. But I think AI is going to lead to the omni-star, just in the way that film led to the superstar and TV led to the megastar. And tell us more about the omni-star. Yeah, so this is a word that we've made up, but it's the idea is to try and get across the way in which AI will allow the biggest stars to be really omnipresent for their fans. And there are a few examples of this that we can see already. AI-powered dubbing is allowing actors and podcasters to speak to foreign audiences in their own voice. And soon it's going to be standard for video editing with AI to allow their lips to move in sync with the new language as well. And at the same time, the most in-demand actors, I think, are going to get more work because AI is going to remove the old Hollywood problem of crowded schedules. At the moment, it's very difficult to get stars on the same film because they're so busy. But in future, they won't need to be in the same room at the same time to play opposite each other. We're also seeing digital Botox increasing the shelf life of ageing actors by making them look younger. And it's even going to let people perform after they're dead. Disney has already acquired the rights to the voice of James Earl Jones, who's 92 now and who voices Darth Vader. And we're seeing new formats as well. So ABBA has this show in London where they perform with these AI-enhanced avatars. Meta has just introduced these chatbots voiced by celebrities as well. And these are just a taste of the kinds of ways that in future the biggest stars might have new formats and new methods of satisfying all this demand from their fans. Okay, so Tom, despite artists' worries, it's probably not going to actually dilute their star power then. I think it's not going to dilute the star power of the biggest stars. I mean, this isn't going to be great for everyone. We've seen a huge increase in the amount of content being uploaded to video platforms like YouTube, audio platforms like Spotify, because now anybody can record a podcast, you know, anybody can make a video. And so there's a lot more of this kind of thing. And it's been good for the people at the very bottom who previously weren't recording anything and selling anything. So the number of musicians on Spotify, for example, who earn $1,000 a year or more in royalties has more than doubled in the past six years. 
But the people who've done really well are the people at the very top. So on Spotify, the number of people earning more than 10 million a year in royalties during that period has quintupled. And we see the same across entertainment. If you look at the movie business, for example, the total number of films released each year over the first couple of decades of the 21st century doubled. So the market got much, much bigger. But at the same time, the share of the total box office that was taken by the top five films in each year also doubled. We're going to see, I think, something similar happening with AI. AI is going to lead to even more content because it's going to get even easier to make songs, to make videos, to self-publish books, you name it. And at the same time, I think the biggest stars stand to gain the most for the same reasons. What we see is that when you have a kind of sea of content like this, audiences rely more on recommendations, whether that's by algorithm or by word of mouth. So we see more people being funneled to the same few top artists at the top. And that's why even though we have so many amazing kind of niches on Spotify of, you know, sea shanties and whistling and you name it, at the same time, we see artists like Taylor Swift, who is currently halfway through the biggest tour in history. So the people at the bottom of the long tail have done well. The people at the very, very top have done incredibly well. And the people, if anything, who have lost out are the ones in the middle. What about those copyright concerns? Surely there's a big danger that people's likenesses could be used to do things or say things that they never actually would. Yeah, their likenesses, their voices, even their style. I mean, go to ChatGPT and ask it to write you a novel in the style of Dan Brown or whoever, and it will do so. I think this is a worry for artists and, you know, they're right to raise these concerns. And again, I think if you look to history as a guide, it's not the first time this has happened. So in the 1960s, actors were worried about being in a film and then that film appearing on TV, and then they wouldn't get any more money for that. And so the royalty system then was rejigged to make sure that they got paid again. We saw something similar when music first went online around the turn of the century. We had companies like Napster, which were really enabling people to share music for free. And for a while, that was terrible for the industry. But then they did deals with the streaming platforms. And now we have the system which actually has revived the recorded music industry. And so I think we'll probably see something similar with AI. We're going to have a few years of a kind of wild west in which there is all kinds of ripping off of people's images, of their voice, of their content. But I think deals will be done and it will allow the biggest stars to license their content in more formats than ever. Okay, enough about the stars. What about us, the audience, the viewers? What happens to us? I think the risk to audiences is just that they might get bored. AI is really, really good at remixing existing content. It's not yet clear that it's so good at coming up with really original stuff that makes your pulse race and your spine tingle and all the rest of it. For now, that is still a human thing. And even though AI content risks being a bit kind of boring, studios and record labels and other creative middlemen might quite like it because they're very risk averse. And we already see that in Hollywood, for example, if a film studio has a choice between launching another sequel or another episode in a franchise or launching something completely new and original, they will always go for the former option. And AI will allow them to do that in the same way and to apply that risk aversion to their casting decisions of actors. So we see this already. If you look at the latest Star Wars spin-off, AI-generated Luke Skywalker is back looking 20-something. And at the moment, audiences are excited by that because it is kind of cool. We haven't really seen it before. But how many more decades of Luke Skywalker versus Darth Vader can we have? There is a risk that people are going to get bored of this stuff. 
That said, the good thing about the entertainment business is that it's pretty good at self-correcting. In other words, if you don't like the new Star Wars, you can switch it off and watch something else. And so I think if studios, if record labels overdo this stuff, they're going to find pretty quickly that audiences are voting with their wallets. And the good thing about the AI revolution is that that long tail of content is going to get even longer and even thicker than before. And so if you're sick of these Omnistars, you're going to have plenty of alternatives. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's astonishing, I know, but there are still some listeners who don't know about our new Economist Podcasts Plus subscription and all the tasty stuff that subscribers can listen to. Over the weekend, for example, was the latest episode of The Weekend Intelligence, a single-story kickback version of your weekday habit. This week, we went to Guyana with the descendants of William Gladstone, a British prime minister whose family had a prominent role in the country's slave trade. It's about the notion of reparations, how the past is never really past, and whether you can inherit guilt. Sign up for a free subscription to Economist Podcasts Plus now and give it a listen. Just search for Economist Podcasts to find out more. Since me and my partner moved to New York City almost two years ago now, we've become very keen birders. Emily Steinmark writes for our U.S. digital team. We love to go to parks in New York City and find birds as Europeans. It's very exciting. Most of the birds are different to the ones that we grew up with. We have a special secret birding place close to where we live where nobody else seems to go. It's a graveyard and it's all overgrown. We go there usually quite early on a Sunday morning. Yeah. Maybe a female red-winged blackbird. Brown thrasher, that's what it was. This time, we were really excited to see a bird that we hadn't seen before. It was a brown thrasher. Even though we have had a really good time looking at birds in New York, most of the time it's quite a dangerous place for them. I've spoken to volunteers with Project Safe Flight. They comb the streets around migration time in spring and autumn looking for birds that have strug windows. Some of them are alive, most of them are dead. But they are hopeful that things might be improving soon because in the last couple of years, New York has been pushing legislation that might actually make it the most bird-friendly city in America. Why is it that New York is such a danger for birds, though? Well, New York, like Philadelphia and Baltimore and Washington, D.C., they all sit under this thing called the Atlantic Flyway, which is an Asian migration route, which millions of birds use every spring and autumn to move between their summer residencies and winter residencies. But during this migration, when they go through the cities that are full of tall buildings with lots of glass, they'll see the windows and the windows will be reflecting bits of sky, bits of greenery in the area. Sometimes they'll be see-through and then they'll just collide with the windows. Up to a quarter of a million of them die by colliding with windows in New York City every year. But you say that there's some recent legislation to address all this. What's going on? Yeah. So in 2021, the New York City Council approved some really landmark legislation that means that all new buildings and all new renovations have to be built in a bird-friendly way. It's actually the most stringent legislation of its kind in America. 
one of the things that they have to do is that if they're using glass up to 75 feet, that glass has to be recognisable to birds as a surface. And the way to achieve this is that you include tiny dots into the actual pane of glass. You don't actually have to get a special pane of glass. You can set a film on it where the dots are UV. A lot of songbirds see in the UV spectrum and humans don't. This legislation was spurred by the case of the Jacob K. Javits Convention Centre in West Manhattan. New York City Audubon, who organises the Project Safe Flight Volunteers, had been counting all of the birds that had been colliding with the Javits Centre, and they just found it was a top bird killer in the city. It's completely made of glass. And so they went to the convention centre and said, look, we've got all of these birds. It's a big problem. And... The Javits Centre needed to renovate their building anyway, so they swapped their panes of glass for new bird-friendly glass in 2013. And the volunteers organised by NYC Audubon found that bird strikes dropped by 90%. Now, the centre also has a green roof. They really embraced becoming this haven for birds in Manhattan. And that green roof is home to a breeding herring gull colony. 62 different species of bird have been spotted there, including some of my favourites, like the brown creeper. It's really positive, And that set an example that the city was convinced by. Well, what about other cities, though? You say that lots of big urban centres on the East Coast are under that same flyway. The legislation in New York City has been inspiring other places on the East Coast. So Maryland's version of the law went into effect last month and Washington, D.C. has put similar legislation through that's going into effect next year. Right. And you say it's largely for new build stuff or for renovations. Yeah, that's true. It doesn't apply to the one million buildings that already exist in New York City. And when you speak to the bird charities like New York City Audubon, that's something that they are still unhappy about. But there are some that are taking voluntary steps, partly, again, because they're being confronted with their status as a top bird killer. So the Circa building, which is just outside of Central Park, and so have lots of migrating birds just flying out of the park and colliding. They have just this last month decided that they were going to cover all of their courtyard windows in these translucent UV dot things that I described earlier. And they're really hoping that this is going to make an impact. And so it's as simple as that to make New York City the most bird friendly in America is simply a matter of changing the glass around. Well, there's also the other problem of lights. New York is famous for its bright lights, and this is the problem for birds. When they're traveling down along the Atlantic Flyway, they often travel along the river, and then they will see the city being this bright thing in the horizon, and it just attracts them. First of all, it's much more dangerous for a little bird to be in a glassy jungle like that. But also, there is some evidence to suggest that artificial light in certain wavelengths can actually interfere with the way that they navigate using the Earth's magnetic field. So they have little receptors in their eyes. And when there's this artificial light around them, it interrupts that mechanism and disorients them, which means they're more likely to crash. But New York City is also at the leading edge of this. So they already have legislation that means all city-owned and managed buildings turn off their lights at night during migration periods. And currently, in committee with the council, there is a sort of expansion of that law, which would see all commercial, non-residential buildings have to switch off their lights at night. New York City has one of the most iconic skylines in the world, and this would definitely change the look of it. 
the most iconic buildings like the Empire State or the Chrysler Building probably would get exemptions. There is room for that in the proposed law. But New Yorkers would have to get on side with birds are so important that we're willing to let go of our iconic skyline for them. Thanks very much for your time, Emily. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We'll see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.